0: So it's um, my pleasure oops, now to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Constance Benson, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, who also came all the way from California to talk to you. Well, I'd like to thank you all for inviting me to talk to you this morning about uh, new and investigational antiretroviral drugs. Um, these are my financial relationships within eligible companies, interesting term these days for CME, uh, learning objectives, and you can read those in your syllabus, so I won't be going over those. So today I'm gonna start with a question about whether there's a need for new antiretroviral drugs and then move on to talking about three classes of drugs. The first will be as Latravir, the second new data on Lenacapavir as was referred to earlier, I'm not going to be talking about maturation inhibitors. There weren't new data presented at CROI and not a lot of new information to talk about. And then briefly talk about broadly neutralizing antibodies as they are being developed for treatment of HIV. So to answer the first question, I think that despite unprecedented progress in treating HIV in the past 30, 35 years there have been significant opportunities still for improving our therapy. You just heard a question from the audience that relates to that. So many patients would prefer to have lower pill burdens, would prefer to have lower drug burdens. There's obviously the promise of these long acting agents for individuals who have adherence challenges and safety challenges with regard to adverse events associated with their current therapies. And lastly, virologic failure, which continues to plague a small proportion of individuals, no matter what classes of drugs they've been exposed to. So I think there's still lots of opportunity. Having said that, there's not a lot of development. Um, this may not be a fully complete slide uh, that I put together last fall for a similar talk, but there are as you can see, a relative paucity of new agents in development for current drug classes and a few for new drug classes. I'm only gonna to be touching on three of these as you heard, but we, there's a lot of room for improvement in our developmental pipeline as well. So the first drug I'm gonna try and talk about now is, is Latrevir, and this is one of those that has had a lot of hiccups along the way in its developmental process. I'm sure this has been covered at previous conferences, and you all are aware that this is a, a new nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor, so a little different than uh, our NNRTI class. It does result in chain termination. It does have a very long plasma half-life and for the parent drug, as well as the triphosphate intracellular component of the drug and it's being evaluated for prevention and treatment in pill, implant, and IV formulations. This is an older slide now. I just want to remind you that the drug has been in development for quite some time, and the early phase two dose ranging studies showed efficacy of all three of the doses that were studied of Islatrevir, and when compared to a control arm of Duraverine, 3TC, and TDF, had comparable levels of viral suppression virologic failure, and was well tolerated in this early phase two b study. islatravir um, continued in clinical development with both three uh, large prevention trials and four large treatment trials launched after those first uh, phase two b studies. but the drug was put on clinical hold by Merck because in nearly all of the studies being conducted, there were observations of decreased total and CD4T lymphocyte counts. And the FDA put the drug on clinical hold until this could be further investigated. Two of these studies that I'm going to present now did not stop, although further enrollment into them was truncated. But these were two phase three switch studies of islatravir combined with duravirine in uh, comparing it to a standard of care switch arm. The first of these was a study done in adults who were virologically suppressed on an oral two or three drug regimen for at least three months and had screening HIV RNA copies of, less than 50 copies at screening. They had to have no prior treatment failure, no duraverine resistance, and no active hepatitis B infection. There was a one to one randomization of this study to either continue baseline ART or to switch to open label Deraverine and Islatravir in a 0.75 milligram dose taken once daily. The primary endpoint was at week 48, and those were the data that were presented at CROI this year. And you can see from the two different colored bars, there was almost equivalent um, virologic suppression rates. Switching to Deraverine and Islatrovir was non-inferior to continuing baseline therapy. There were no failures in the Deraverine Islatrovir arm, only one in the, or five failures in the um, continuing baseline therapy arm. And only three participants who failed had resist, had some level of baseline resistance in that continuing background therapy arm. More importantly, though, I want to highlight this just as an example because I'm not going to go through this with every single study. But overall, the CD4 cell count at week forty through week forty-eight and the total lymphocyte count through week forty-eight was decreased in the duraverine and islatravir arm compared to the control arm, which had a modest increase, and that was a modest increase even though they were continuing on their baseline maintenance therapy. So this highlights the concern over the use of this regimen um, in its clinical development. The second SWITCH study was also presented at CROI, and this had a standardized control arm of Victegravir, FTC, and TAF. And similar eligibility criteria, similar study design, participants were randomized one-to-one to to receive the same oral dose of Duraverine and Islatravir in a dose of 0.75 milligrams for the Islatravir, and were also taking placebo. So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And the control arm was to uh, continue Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF. Again, the week 48 endpoint was presented at CROI, and again, you can see exactly equivalent um, bars here for suppression at 48 weeks, and both arms had about a 93 to 94% suppression rate. The overall failure rate, only three of the patients, two in the Duraverine is and one in the comparator arm had confirmed virologic failure there was no resistance detected in to Deraverine or islatravir in the failure uh, on that arm and islatravir was not detected in plasma suggesting that there may have been an adherence re- issue resulting in uh, treatment failure in that trial as well the cd4 cell count and t lymphocyte counts were low had decreased by week 48 in the deravarine is arm and had increased in the control arm. So just some key points from these two phase three trials. The but they both had similar baseline demographic, viral, and CD4 count characteristics. The drug regimen was well tolerated. Few patients discontinued due to adverse events. There were no serious adverse events. And the the um, interpretation of the CD4 T cell count and total lymphocyte count de- declines were that they were modest and not clinically significant, but it's clear that they were different from the comparator arm. So there was a nice presentation by Kate Squires from Merck looking at their examination of this issue of declines in total and T- CD4 T lymphocyte counts at Croix. And looking at the more than 1,400 patients with HIV who were treated with islatravir in all of the trials and the 884 who were treated in prevention trials, they've established that the mechanism for this decline is the preferential accumulation of islatravir triphosphate in lymphocytes, leading to supratherapeutic levels that are associated with apoptosis and uh, killing of the cell, turning it resulting in decreases. There was no evidence in their studies of mitochondrial toxicity. I'm just showing you three representative graphs that Dr. Squires showed looking at the fact that this was true across all of the studies in all of the populations, regardless of whether they were being used for prevention in uninfected individuals or for treatment. And you can see the the bars that are going down are all the lymphocyte count assessments for those randomized to aslativeer in those studies, and the bars going up were the control arms in those studies. So it's clear it's across all populations. Um, this is a graphic depiction from her presentation, just of the data from those three, uh, those two phase three trials that I showed following people out to 96 weeks on 0.75 milligrams in the switch studies for the first and out to 72 weeks for the second. And the three points to take away from this, you won't be able to see uh, much of the numbers themselves. But the acute decline appeared to taper off after about 48 weeks of therapy, with most of the patients who continued on drug having uh, their levels tapering off, and when the drug was stopped, they gradually migrated back to baseline levels for CD4 count and T-lymphocyte counts. And that was true uh, in th- out through week 96. And in the phase two dose ranging studies, the effect was seen at all three doses, but there was a clear dose response relationship, with the highest dose being associated with the greatest decrease in CD4 and total T lymphocyte counts. And that was their conclusion from their studies. There was no increase in incidence of infection or other complications in any of the patients treated with islatrovir, and they were able to talk about the fact that with clinical and modeling data identified from these studies, they were able to establish a threshold for the triphosphate level and clinical doses below which they do not expect to see this decline in total lymphocyte and CD4 T cell counts. And so islatravir is back on the development pathway, Um, their clinical trials have been restarted, and they are now restarting those trials with a dose of Duraverine established at 100 milligrams and Islatravir at 0.25 milligrams in once daily in treatment naive and virally suppressed participants. I'm gonna move on now to talk about Lenacapavir. Um, again, this is an older slide now. It's been talked about for several years it is in its clinical development. It is the first in class capsid inhibitor uh, drug class active against a broad range of HIV-1 isolates, including those that are resistant to currently available ARVs, and its mechanism of action is modulating the stability or transport of capsid complexes, which is a necessary process at several steps in viral replication. Um, We saw at last year's CROI the initial data from the Calibrate study, and this was the study of lenacapavir in treatment-naive individuals. I'll just briefly remind you of those data, but I found it to be a relatively complex uh, study design in that it combined both oral and subcutaneous injections with lenacapavir in a treatment-naive group and compared them to uh, comparator arm of Bictegravir FTAF. The four treatment groups here, um, group one, two, and three, all lenacapavir arms, the first two lenacapavir given subcutaneously every six months, and the third group lenacapavir given orally, all three arms initially combined with FTAF given once, da- once daily orally. And then at week 28, the first two groups were switched to either TAF plus lenacapivir alone, Or Bictagravir plus lenacapavir alone. And the primary endpoint was week 54. So the data presented at last year's CROI showed uh, relatively comparable levels to the comparator arm of virologic suppression. And in particular, the two subcutaneous arms were associated with an 88% achieving and maintaining of virologic suppression at week 54. In only two patients, were identified with lenocapivir resistance mutations, both re-suppressed on standard therapy, and three patients had treatment-limiting injection site reactions. So a big lead-in to the update that was presented at CROI this year, and this study has now been followed out to week 80, And you can see that the bars are roughly similar across all four of the different arms in terms of virologic suppression, with the conclusion at week 80 being that in treatment, naive people with HIV, subcutaneous lenacapavir with TAF, bictegravir, or an oral combination with FTAF all maintained high rates of viral suppression through week 80. The drug was well-tolerated. Discontinuations were infrequent and treatment emergent resistance mutations were infrequent as well. The metabolic um, complexities of therapy were comparable and similar across all treatment groups, so nothing stood out as something emerging on therapy. More importantly, though, and again going back to the question from the audience, um, lenacapavir in people with drug-resistant HIV was also studied in the Capella trial. Again, the first results of that trial were presented last year at CROI. And again, just to remind you of that study design, individuals who are failing on an antiretroviral therapy regimen and had fewer than two fully active agents in the remaining drug classes, were randomized in a double-blind cohort to receive functional monotherapy with oral lenacapavir versus placebo for 14 days while continuing their failing regimen, and then moved on to a maintenance phase of optimized background therapy plus Lenacapavir given subcutaneously every six months, or in the placebo group, a 14-day oral lead-in phase, and then going on to subcutaneous lenacapavir every six months. There was also a non-randomized co- cohort that was followed open label that went immediately on to oral lenacapavir and optimized background therapy, and then on to the maintenance phase of subcutaneous lenacapavir. So the Week 52 results were presented at ID Week and then recapitulated this year at CROI, and the key points of this year's presentation at CROI was the uh, finding that there was similar efficacy in both groups of lenacapavir dosing and The efficacy did not appear to differ by the diversity of demographics at baseline, baseline characteristics of CD4 count or viral load, or baseline characteristics in terms of racial or ethnic groups. And they did not differ by the number of fully active agents in optimized background therapy. Although it looks like there's a little bit more of activity in terms of having two fully active agents in optimized background therapy to combine with lenacapivir, all three, uh, both groups, uh, had similar outcomes and did not appear to have different ones based on how much optimized background therapy they got. So as you all know, lenacapivir is now approved for use in individuals who have been previously treated on and had a failing regimen with drug-resistant HIV. And we'll, I'm sure, see more information uh, in the treatment-naive population shortly. So let's move on to talk about the class of drugs broadly neutralizing antibodies. Again, these have been in development or around for a long period of time. Um, the The figure here is courtesy of Pablo Tebas from a previous talk that he gave on this topic, just showing you in a color-coded way the multiple different epitopes at which broadly neutralizing antibodies have been targeted. And there are a number of them that have been tested against HIV. Some general characteristics for broadly neutralizing antibodies is that the ones that have been tested in clinical settings appear to be generally safe. They have long half-lives or have been engineered to have longer half-lives. They have antiviral activity that suppresses viremia. They do have a propensity for selection of resistance. Many of them are associated with baseline resistance mutations and particularly will do so with monotherapy. And they're currently in development not just for treatment but also for their ability to directly eliminate infected cells and potentially reduce the viral reservoir in various strategies being attempted for cure of HIV. I won't be talking about that uh, category. This is just a summary slide of several published studies of broadly neutralizing antibodies and their effect on plasma viremia, courtesy of Marina Kasky from her work. And across all of these studies, you can see from the graphics that all of the broadly neutralizing antibodies tested in these studies had a, a modest reduction in plasma viremia overall with nadir viremia reductions of 1.5 to 2 logs. However, in monotherapy studies, there was a rapid rebound and rapid development of resistance when two or more um, BNABs were combined that rebound took longer to occur, and the viral nadir was a little bit lower, and when all three were combined in, in uh, a single infusion, there was, a, again, more prolongation to viral rebound, but still, relative uh, selection for resistance of strains, uh, resistance strains did occur, and viral rebounds uh, occurred in nearly all of the patients treated. And this has led to a lot of work done with bioengineering some of these broadly neutralizing antibodies, both to increase their half-life and their bioavailability, hoping to get more potent activity from them, either alone or in combination. And again, these are representative graphs from several studies but showing with the vrco one for example, by bioengineering the half-life of this one has been increased from 15 days to 71 days and likewise with the other two uh, BNABS from 24 to 80 days or 17 days to 66 days. So overall about a threefold longer uh, serum half-life of the parental BNABS than the Then that were then moved on into clinical testing. And part of the reason for increasing both the bioavailability and the prolongation of the half-life is to allow these to be given in twice-yearly infusions or in subcutaneous infusions on a quarterly basis. And these have now moved into clinical testing. A different uh, broadly neutralizing antibody that was presented at Glasgow this past fall has in vitro activity and targets the CD4 binding site of the HIV1 envelope protein. And this was a BNAB that was tested in a treatment-naive population with greater than 5,000 copies per ml of virus and greater than 250 cells CD4 counts. And both a high dose, 40 milligrams per kilogram given as a single IV infusion and a low dose, four milligrams per kilogram given as a single IV infusion were tested. And patients were then followed for through day 84 and then moved on to a standard of care background with dolutegravir and 3TC. The primary endpoint for the study was the maximum change in viral load during monotherapy phase and safety with secondary endpoints following uh, various PK parameters and antibody levels. And this summary slide, I won't go through all of the details, but just to uh, summarize that there were no grade three or four adverse events, none that were, there were no serious adverse events, injection site reactions were generally of only grade one uh, and resolved uh, completely. A single infusion was generally well tolerated, and you can see here, that the high-dose infusion resulted in a maximum viral nadir of of about 2.6 logs and a little over 2 logs for the low dose, and the median time to viral rebound was also greater for the higher dose. Um, There was a very interesting study presented also at CROI this year attempting to combine two of these um, broadly neutralizing antibodies. The first, I'm not going to just go through all the names because they always get my tongue tied. But I'll call it TAB and the second ZAB. And these two broadly neutralizing antibodies target different non-overlapping epitopes of the viral envelope. The first TAB being a CD4 binding site, um, broadly neutralizing antibody, and ZAB, uh, one of the uh, uh, V3 glycan epitopes of the viral envelope, and in a randomized blinded phase 1b study that looked at safety and efficacy of a long-acting regimen combining these two broadly neutralizing antibodies with lenacapavir, the data were presented at CROI. The original study design um, looked at individuals who were virologically suppressed for at least 18 months on a background regimen, had viral susceptibility at baseline to both of these broadly neutralizing antibodies and had a CD4 count above 500. The study design was initially intended to look at two infusions of both lenacapavir and the neutralizing antibodies, but because of the temporary clinical hold on lenacapavir during the course of the study because of the storage vial incompatibility that's now been that has been resolved. Subsequently, they amended the study design to look at just a single dose. Group one received lenacapavir TAB, and ZAB in a low dose, and group two received lenacapavir TAB, and ZAB at a higher dose, and the primary endpoint was at week 26. And you can see here that there was an oral uh, lenacapavir dose given on day one and day two, and then an injectable dose given on day one, and then the two infusions on day one. And these are the virologic efficacy outcomes at week 26. This was a very small study. I will caution you about overinterpreting the results here. There were 18 out of the 20 participants maintained viral suppression through week 26, regardless of the dose of the BNABS. One participant withdrew at week 12, although he was fully suppressed at the time. And one participant had confirmed virologic. We rebound at week 16, but was resuppressed after going back to their baseline uh, antiretroviral therapy. So a very good outcome, but to me, more interesting data from this study um, was the fact that in all of the patients for whom levels were obtained, serum levels of the two broadly neutralizing antibodies were maintained well above the threshold in the dotted line here for viral suppression out to week 26 so could have even been um, given at an even longer duration between doses and likewise the lenacapavir levels were well above the IQ4 uh, threshold for suppression of viral load for lenacapavir so the combination of these three, given once, maintained very good levels through week 26 and were suppressive in those individuals. Other, uh, to take a word from Judy's slides, snippets from Croy 2023 that she didn't cover. Um, again, I'm going back to the Islatravir dosing, and uh, in some of the studies that were presented at CROI, they were able to identify or optimize uh, modeling of Islatravir for viral suppression with looking at different doses of Islatravir compared to standard of care ART. Baseline viral sensitivity in the Banner study to the broadly neutralizing antibody in addition to baseline CD4 cell count were both correlated with the magnitude and the duration of the antiviral response in that study. And I think um, a fascinating concept that I look forward to seeing if this will play out in further development is the conversion of Bictegravir into an ultra-long-acting pro-drug nano formulation that may have the potential for being given as a parenteral dose every six months. So again, expanding our repertoire of long-acting injectable agents. So just to go back in conclusion, to answer my initial question, I do think there's an ongoing need for new antiretroviral drugs in development, but maybe less urgent than we have had in the past, but the pipeline's not robust. There our greatest efforts have been devoted to the area of long-acting injectable drugs, as you've seen, although each of these has had a number of hiccups along the way and the complexities of implementation you already heard a little bit about from Dr. Courier. There, I think, is an uncertain clinical path for broadly neutralizing antibodies used alone, although I think the data are intriguing in using them in combination with some of the other long-acting agents of different classes. And so I think it'll remain to be seen whether this is an approach that comes into clinical practice for treatment. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you for that tour de force. We have a couple of questions uh, already submitted, but I'll encourage people to come up to the microphone because that's always much more fun. Um, probably easier for you to just sure. read the question. read the questions. you don't need <laughs> to. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the first question is about the Deraverine and Islatravir combination and asking more whether I have more to say about the rationale for combining Deraverine and Islatravir versus other drugs with Islatravir. I think that's a, a better question to address to Merck. but. Uh, this often has more to do with um, pharma um, considerations than with investigative considerations. So I don't think there I can go much further than that about explaining their rationale. Um, second question has to do with the ideal patient who would benefit from monoclonal antibody therapy, and this will be key to answer the insurance question. I think that's a very good question to think about. I think a lot of the people who are working on developing broadly neutralizing antibodies have been concentrating on trying to focus development on improving the antiviral activity and improving the durability and bioavailability so that they can be given in uh, very infrequent dosing with the attention being to perhaps using them once or twice a year for dosing. The ideal patient, I think, will probably fit into a similar category for the ideal patient that you would use some of the other long-acting agents. And right now, many of the things that have been talked about are people who are virally suppressed at the time you start them on therapy. This idea of starting people with, who are, have detectable virus on a long-acting injectable right from the get-go is something that deserves further evaluation but hasn't been looked at um, in a careful enough way in a variety of clinical settings to help us answer that question. So I think viral suppression at the time they switched to a broadly neutralizing antibody and having baseline resistance testing to show that the virus is susceptible to the broadly neutralizing antibodies are two of the things that have been looked at in clinical trials. And I think we'll learn more about what the optimal patient population might be as time goes along. The whole issue of CD4 cell counts and viral loads at baseline when you are considering um, enrolling patients on a suppressive regimen, we know from past experience that very low CD4 counts and very high viral loads tend to be not the optimal situation for starting people on something that may be a more vulnerable type of therapy. So I think we'll learn more about the answer to that question as the studies evolve. Um, next question, did investigators men- mention what percent of those tested for susceptibility to broadly neutralizing antibodies did not have susceptible virus? Well, the two studies that I showed you that are a little further along in our actual formal clinical trials both uh, had tested at baseline and individuals who were resistant to those broadly neutralizing antibodies were excluded from those studies. Most of the studies that have been done have been more exploratory and have shown that anywhere from as few as about as a couple percent to as high as 10% of individuals have baseline resistance mutations to at least one of the broadly neutralizing antibodies that had been tested and those were in the combination studies but i think that very much depends on the type of broadly neutralizing antibody the epitope that it's targeting and Um, what's being used in combination. So I think that's going to be something to pay attention to as these compounds get further evaluated for treatment in clinical trials, because it will be important for us to know what proportion of individuals are going to have background resistance to a variety of these broadly neutralizing antibodies. The next question. Would you feel comfortable switching from enfuvertide to lenacapavir in a patient with highly resistant virus on long-term infuvertide? So that's a very good question. I don't think that particular type of patient was particularly highlighted in the Capella study. Uh, again, it's, I think given the potency of the drug, the fact that in the Capella trial it didn't appear to matter what um, number of drugs that were fully active in the optimized background regimen suggests to me that you could potentially switch someone to that. But I think all of us would feel a little uncomfortable with that Um, Again, these are relatively small studies in the scheme of things, and we really need a little bit more experience from larger trials and in clinical practice to understand what's the optimal patient in that setting. So um, again, I think I would feel comfortable trying it, but carefully monitoring that patient and looking for the potential of adding additional drugs, um, whatever those classes of drugs might be, to keep the situation stable. Um, in the syllabus, uh, there is a section on log-acting cabotegravir solar study. Yes, the syllabus contained um, my earlier draft version of slides rather than the final version that I presented today, but the solar study was covered by Dr. Courier just in the talk just prior to mine, and so her slides are in the syllabus, and you can refer to the syllabus for her slides on the solar study. So, any other questions? I think that's it. Okay. So, thank you. Thank you. And um, we can take a break now. Um, we'll ask every. Yes, and we'll ask everybody to be back at uh, 10, 16 in their seats to start the next session.